0: Jesus, thank you so much for your word. We love it, and we ask God for your Holy Spirit to dwell within our minds, our hearts, our souls, our spirits to understand what you have for us. Not necessarily what's coming out of my mouth, Lord, but may you dynamically minister to people's hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're new to our church, We just study the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we just kind of go through. So if you look at this and you're like, the guy has the wrong holiday. I don't. We're here, Luke chapter 23, we've been here for like three and a half years. So we just kind of go through the Bible. And so we're talking about something really difficult. And if you're visiting here thinking, oh, it's the Advent season. Great, we're going to hear about baby Jesus. I apologize ahead of time because we're going to go into some pretty brutal stuff. And uh, some of it pretty harsh. So just to get you prepared for that. If you need counseling afterwards, I'm available. So verses 26 through 31. Jesus had been changing the lives of people for three years now, right? Three years prior to this scripture that we're going to be studying this morning. And some came to know him as Messiah, but many more came to reject him. And so here we are in the section of Luke after Jesus was sentenced to be crucified by Pilate and he was scourged and he's led out of the city to die on the cross. Now, the cross is a defining moment in world history. It is the most powerful moment in world history, not just for Christians, but for the world a historic moment that influenced our past, influences our present, will influence our future. And if you don't believe me, then why does the whole world know about December 25th? Do they not? It's the birth of Jesus. Most of the world knows this. Most of the world, I think, has also adulterated Christmas. But really, is that a surprise to any of us Bible believers? Is that a surprise at all? Because in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 through 35, Simeon, who had the Holy Spirit upon him, said to Mary, Jesus' mother, in verses 34 and 35, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. What was Simeon talking about? Well, in a one-word definition, he's talking about division. Division. Jesus would cause division. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 12, verse 51, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. But what appears to have happened so far in Luke chapter 23 appears to be unity, doesn't it? The Sadducees and the Pharisees are coming together? I mean, they were divided before. These guys were divided over doctrinal issues. Herod and Pilate, they were at enmity with one another before, and now they are friends. The Jewish religious leaders and and the Roman authorities who didn't like working together are suddenly working together. So we're looking at this, and they're all united against Jesus. But we know that Jesus came to divide Right? The religious orthodox from those who seem the furthest away from God, right? Like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the adulterer and and all these people that Jesus came to divide those groups. The ones who are in power from those who are weak, And those who have, and those who have not, and the proud, and the humble. And you notice that it's these outsiders, these castaways, these marginalized, these least, the last. This is who seems to understand Jesus. It's not this group over here. It's this group that seems to understand Jesus. And that's what we've observed throughout the Gospel of Luke, isn't it? How he reaches to the marginalized, how he reaches to the outcast. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' orientation is towards the least, the last, the lost. And who was he harshest towards? The religious, the prideful. The ones who had everything. And Jesus didn't come to assemble this team of religious professionals to change the world. He came for this group to change the world. Because this group is not insular. This one is And he wants us to go and share the gospel with the lost. To to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Now with that intro, let's move into our text this morning, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, Simon of Cyrene had at least two children, Alexander and Rufus. Um, I don't know why, but I really like that name, Rufus. We know this because it's recorded for us in Mark chapter 12, verse 21, right? We also know that he was of Cyrene, which is in Libya. It's the modern day city of Shahat, which is fairly close by to Benghazi, all the stuff that you're hearing in the news nowadays. This is where this is close to. Now, prior to back then, Cyrene was this Greek colony, and then it was later a Roman city. And in that city, there was a large Jewish community, over 100,000 Judean Jews in Cyrene. Now, the Cyrene Jews would have built a synagogue in Jerusalem because there was this large group of them that went from the northern part of Libya to Israel during these annual feasts and Passover being one of them. So they would go and they'd have their own synagogue. So, a large population of them there. Simon was there as a pilgrim during the Passover. This is during the Passover. And what he thought was going to be this great time of festivities and celebration turns out to be this incredibly life changing event for him that he never expected to happen. Standing by the roadside there, and Jesus is going off to Golgotha. And there, he is seized by the Roman soldiers. He's told to carry the cross behind this bloodied, bludgeoned man whom he probably knew little about or nothing about. And don't think that the Romans seized Simon because they felt sorry for Jesus. Oh, he's having a tough time carrying the cross, guys. Here, come help him. That is not why they asked him. They made Simon carry the cross because they wanted to make sure that Jesus made it to his place of execution. That they didn't have to carry him. That you go on for yourself and he's not going to make it carrying this thing. Hey, get over here. And they want to make sure he's he's there to make it so that they could hang him on the cross. Now, imagine what was happening from Simon's perspective. He was there to celebrate. He's there to celebrate Passover, right? He's there to celebrate when God's judgment passed over those who had the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel of their house during the judgment when he was sending those plagues to Egypt because they wouldn't let the people free. You can look at that story in Exodus. And so you imagine what he thought as he's starting to connect these dots. Maybe not right then, but as he's looking back in those stories and thinking about Passover, doorposts, lintel, blood, cross. Oh my God. And, and what he physically did in, in terms of carrying the cross, but then what literally happened to him later. Now, how do we know that Simon became a Christian? That he came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior? How do we know this? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, there's the inclusion of Simon's sons, right? Alexander and Rufus, which suggests that they had standing in the early Christian church. That these guys were known in the early Christian church. Because when the Gospels were written, the early church read them with a lot more understanding of the context than we have. They didn't have to be told where Cyrene was. They knew Cyrene is in in Libya. There's a huge population like us. Uh, Where's New York City? Like You don't have to... Tell us like we, we know. And so they knew these things. And when they received the Gospels, when they received Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they didn't need a lot of background information because these people that were written about were, were contemporaries of the early church. So, so they kind of knew. So when Simon of Cyrene, Alexander, Rufus, when these guys are mentioned, there was a high likelihood that all of them knew of these guys, that these guys were kind of known to the Gospel recipients. And if they weren't, it wouldn't be that hard to describe it to them. Hey, yeah, Simon, remember he's the guy that carried Jesus' cross and his sons, you know? And so they could do this. And the recipients would understand this. And so the idea behind this is, these guys are Christians. They're mentioning well-known guys. Like, yeah, those guys. Now, it's not 100% known by us whether they were indeed Christ's followers, but the evidence points us in that direction. Otherwise, why mention their names? Why didn't Mark even bother mentioning their names? Why didn't they just go right past it? So presumably, they're mentioned in the Gospel because they were known to be part of the early Christian church. And what happened to Simon had this significant impact on him and his family. Simon was changed forever by bearing the cross. And when you heard from Luke what was written in chapter 14, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples that had a profound understanding to him of what Jesus was saying there. Because he did that. Literally. And his experience of carrying the cross had this really profound effect on him and his family, namely his sons, Alexander and Rufus. This is an incredible thing. I mean, just think about this. Think about this whole scenario. Jesus was going to die on a cross. He was going to his execution. He's severely beaten. He's physically weakened. He's thirsty. And it seemed that the enemies of God had the upper hand. Yet, through this picture of defeat and brokenness and weakness in Jesus, what do we see? Grace, mercy, and love all throughout. Because even though this is happening to Jesus, look at what's happening in Simon of Cyrene's family. I mean, God's awesome. He doesn't waste a nanosecond of time. Even through this sadness, there's this beautiful thing happening. And things don't look good at all, but but God was still at work with the Gospel throughout this time, this really dark hour of history. And in this picture, we see God at work. And we also see what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That we are to each bear our own cross the cross is what identifies us as disciples of Jesus, right? It's not that we go to church. It's not that we're religious. It's not that we do community outreach or that we serve or how we dress or what movies we watch and don't watch or what music we listen to or don't listen to or how we talk. It's not even about our morality. Really? Is it? Christianity. Think about this. Because haven't you met people... Who are more moral and honest and hospitable, and they're not Christians. The most charitable, hospitable, honorable person I know is not a Christian. It's my mother. That is the most honest, honorable person I know. Most charitable person I know. And it's not just because I'm her son. I see how she treats her friends, I see how she treats her family. But she's not a Christian. What identifies you as a disciple of Jesus is the cross. It's the cross. Because Jesus' death on the cross is what paid for our sin. It is not what you are doing. It is not what you are capable of doing. Now, I went out to lunch with an attorney friend of mine that I used to work with a few years ago. I'm not an attorney. Nor do I pretend to be one. He was in the legal department. I was in the investment management department. And so we got together and we're talking, and and you know what he told me? He said, uh, the majority of the time that I get cut off on the freeway or somebody flips me off, they usually have these um, not of this world sticker on the back of their truck or bumper. Now he knows I'm a pastor. And so he asked me, what's up with that? And I told him, they are not of this world. So they don't believe in courtesy when they drive. They're out there. So they're there. Now having that sticker does not mean that you're a Christian. It means you're a bad driver, but it doesn't mean that you're a Christian. It is the cross that identifies you, and it's not the picture of a cross, right? It's not that you have a cross in the back of your truck or whatever. And it's not that you know the story of the cross either. Oh, I know the story of the cross. I'm done, right? I'm a Christian. No, the message of the cross is to be securely planted in your life as your new identity in Jesus. For you to carry into everlasting the story of Jesus that He bore your sins on the cross and that you are to share that story. Not just to remember on Easter and not just to remember on Christmas but for everlasting so whatever we do as disciples of Jesus and as a church the cross needs to be at the center at the front of everything the way we communicate that to our culture it might look different in style it might look different in method it might look different in timing but if we are to make an impact in our world the cross has to be center of the Christian story otherwise why bother There are so many other parachurch organizations, humanitarian, philanthropic organizations that do those things so much better than we do. Why bother? The difference is we have the cross. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Simon of Cyrene had a really good picture of what it meant to follow Jesus since he literally followed Jesus bearing a cross. That's to be you and me. And many times in the world of Christian evangelism, we present a very sterile Jesus Christ. Do we not? There are people within our faith who teach Jesus Without a cross. That is an impossibility. That is impossible. I understand that He rose from the grave. And He is no longer on the cross. I understand that. That's some of the reason why Protestants have an issue with Catholics. Because Catholics portray a Jesus that's still on the cross. But please tell me. How can we have faith in Jesus without the cross? You can't. That's impossible. And I think it's important to see Jesus on the cross sometimes because sometimes we forget what happened. We just see that. And so, what is that? And sometimes it's also important to see Jesus not in that because, yeah, He rose from the dead. I think both symbols are very significant and very important. But do you know what Christianity without the cross looks like? It looks like people who equate Christianity with being successful. You know, successful. You have a good job. You got a good education. You don't have major problems in your life, at least ones that you don't want to share about. And you don't make big mistakes, at least ones you don't let people know about. And you parade through life as though you know all the answers and the world revolves around you. Is that not true? When you go talk about Christians, people, they already have this preconceived notion that oh this is this guy and you ever wonder how the world views Christians and from my experience and this is just from my experience I'm not saying that this is gospel truth but this is happening more so in suburbs than in urban areas from my experience but the world views Christians as out of touch and cheap especially when they go out to eat after Sunday I'm serious Talk to those servers. A lot of those servers hate serving on Sunday. Why? Because those Christians are cheap. Now, if you are cheap and you go out, just don't pray. Don't identify yourself as a Christian, right? If you do, if you pray and you do all that stuff, you better leave a big tip, all right? But you wonder why we don't have a greater impact on our culture. It's because we're presenting a crossless Christianity, we are busier with how we look on a given Sunday and how we're dressed and how we talk and how we present ourselves as confident people, knowledgeable people that we are put together as a family. Our family has no issues. Look at us. We walk into church together holding hands and we walk out holding hands and we're, we are people that don't make Big mistakes, we make little mistakes, and we repent of those little mistakes, but we don 't make big mistakes, and we are people to be looked up to because we have all the answers, and because we got it going on. But those people are often powerless. Why did Jesus reach out to these people? Not these guys who seem to be powerful and had everything. A lot of what is going on in evangelical Christianity is powerless. And the main reason why, there is no cross. We present good works. We present philanthropic things. We present relief work, humanitarian thing, medical relief. We, we present all these other things. We present to our world leftovers of the cross. Because those are byproducts of the cross. Those are good things. Service is a good thing. Justice is a good thing. Community is a good thing. Put-togetherness is a good thing. But all those things standing alone are not an entree like the cross. Those are just appetizers. Those are desserts. Those are just things around the thing. Justice, service, community, all those other good things, those are hopeless, pointless, useless, impotent, misleading, and disastrous In everlasting, without the cross. You could do some stuff in the temporary, yeah, of course. But in the view of everlasting, those things are really hopeless. Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verses 34 through 37. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Yet how often do we neglect the cross? We offer all this other stuff, we offer up the whole world. How often do we accept and agree with everything that we desire and we go with that? But we leave the cross behind. We have a heart for children or something, so we go with that. We have a heart for the homeless, so we go for that. We have a heart for whatever injustice is out there and we go for that. But we leave the cross behind. We are following our flesh and the things of the world more than we are following Jesus. Showing Christianity on the outside as altogether and presentable and respectable, but everyone knows that that is not true. Right? They all know. And this isn't all Christians, because I know that there are some really great Christian communities out there that are authentic, and they are presenting themselves to be imperfect and mistake-laden and flawed and broken, and that is refreshing because that is real, and everyone else out there knows that that's the case. So there's no reason why to present something else. I'm talking to those of you who present yourself to be better than you really are. How in the world are you going to reach a broken world if you present yourself to be perfect in the eyes of an imperfect world? It's impossible. Now, Jesus was perfect. I will grant that. It's biblical that that is so. But he didn't present himself to be all that that I think a lot of Christian evangelicals try to present themselves to be. He wasn't hip to the greatest fashion. This is what he chose. He chose not to have a biological father. So that back in that day, that is not a good thing. He chose to be educated in second-rate Galilee, not in Jerusalem. He chose to come poor. He chose to come just looking like an average man right not the sexiest man of life. who is that now channing tatum or something like that how i know these things i don't know it just popped in my head just, it's kind of, kind of weird but he was sinless right he was sin- but in the eyes of the world he did not choose what the world what society would deem best he didn't he didn't have that stuff doesn't that make god so much more approachable so why do we want to put on anything except that which is true how about exposing your faults and that we are fallen that we don't have everything together that we do have messed up families and we do have all this stuff and the only way to communicate to a broken world that our hope is in Jesus is to reveal that we are broken as well and that he saved us anyway to present to them the cross and not giving them leftovers We're not about justice without the cross. We're not about service without the cross. We're not about community without the cross. The cross is what drives us to serve and to address injustice and community. So many people are hurting. And I hear so many of your stories. And for those of you who have shared those stories with me, who else around you knows? Who else around you knows those stories? Are you in a community group that can listen to you, pray for you, encourage you? Who is in your life that you can openly share with and confide in and confess to? And and in those community groups, where is the cross in those groups? Because if it's not there, why are you meeting? Why are you meeting? Isn't that just vanity then? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And without the cross, what do you really have to say in light of everlasting, in light of eternity? Simon of Cyrene, he took on his cross, he began to follow Jesus. How about you? Verse 27, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So keep this in mind, they go from crucify, crucify him to this great multitude mourning and lamenting. The mob got what they wanted from Pilate, but then there's this other group of people who recognize the injustice and they are grieving. Now, Luke pointed out the women mourning and lamenting for Jesus. And look at how Jesus addressed them specifically. Verse 28, But turning to them. What? He's on His way to the cross, and yet He pauses and He turns to this group of women. And Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. What? This is confusing, and it just gets more confusing as we go on with the green wood and stuff like that. But we'll get to that. Do not weep for me. This is so weird, right? You're the one beaten up. You're going to die this unjust death, but weep for yourselves and for your children? God loves his children, and what he's telling them is that your lamenting, your mourning is misplaced. And it's not that your mourning and your lamenting is wrong or that it's bad, but there will be something in the future that is going to be a cause of greater mourning for you and for your children. There will be a coming judgment that would fall on Jerusalem in 70 A.D., but there will also be this judgment at the end of one's life. That's the more serious thing. Now, you recall in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, when Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus knew what would happen to them because they wouldn't receive him as their Savior, that they would be destroyed by Titus a few decades later. So Jesus told them not to weep for him because their mourning About what's right in front of them, about Jesus dying by mourning that they are losing sight of the larger picture. And yes, Jesus' death was tragic, it was sad, it was unjust. Jesus was telling them that, you know, your tears, your grief, your compassion, it's misdirected. He wanted them to see the bigger picture and not be so myopic about what was happening right before their eyes. Judgment was coming because Jesus was rejected as Messiah. The people rejected Jesus and didn't have faith or belief in Jesus Christ as Savior. That's what is truly sad. That's what's to be mourned and lamented over. Jesus wasn't worried about himself. He knew He would rise again on the third day. He prophesied that many times. The resurrection will happen. But many would still reject Jesus. And Jesus knew what would happen to them. Luke chapter 19, verses 43-44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children, with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The women mourning and lamenting Jesus, they sympathized with what was happening to Jesus, but they lost sight that that was God incarnate. That was Jesus, God, right before their eyes. Then the women recognized a merciless, cruel, barbaric injustice, but they didn't recognize the bigger picture. God was present before them, and because of their rejection of Jesus, Jerusalem will be destroyed. Jesus never asked for sympathy for his death. Do you notice that all the Gospel writers don't write about the passion? You notice that? That's filled in by other things, by traditions and other denominations and those types of things. If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts, do they thoroughly detail the passion? of Christ they don't the passion of jesus was extremely sad and extremely cruel but the point of the gospel writers was to bring us back to god god and jesus are not wanting us to internalize his suffering and how he was beaten and all that stuff that is part of the redemption story but it's for us to keep our eyes on the bigger picture Verse 29, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Keep your eyes on the bigger picture because if the women just looked at Jesus as another man suffering an unjust death, does that really change them? If it's just another guy. So many people have died unjust deaths, right? So many people have experienced similar things to what Jesus experienced physically, biologically. So wouldn't that just be like any other sad event that occurred? But does that really transform? Does that really change? If you want change, imagine something that really affects you. Like your children. To think that it would be better to be barren and to never have had children because of how bad things are going to be. Now, Now keep in mind that barrenness was thought of to be like a curse at this time. That if you were barren, something was wrong with you. But to think that being barren is a blessing. Jesus threw out this shocking statement. But He was getting across to them their future. That what was going to happen to them, they will wish that none of their children will have to endure that judgment that they were going to experience. They will wish that they were dead rather than go through what the Romans were going to do to them. Verse 30, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills, cover us. They will wish that they were dead. Now, all of this is proven in world history at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. You could read that. It says, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, how many of us have a misdirected sympathy or misdirected cause? How many of us have been myopic over someone's or a group's temporary injustice when we don't even have life everlasting as the center, as the priority? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, why do we do what we do? I found out that regeneration has 27 ministries. Did you know that? I didn't know that until one of our staff people brought that up to me and said, did you know we have 27 ministries? I said, we do? Who runs those? (laughs) We have 27 ministries. The question I have for you guys who are running these ministries, do we have Jesus and the cross at the forefront and center of each of those ministries or are our sympathies and compassion and justice misdirected? Have we become myopic in our respective ministry causes and not had an everlasting perspective as to why we love our neighbor and why we love God? Jesus was in the middle of suffering death But he loved these women too much to let them misplace their compassion. He turned to them and he spoke to them. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Are we weeping for the right things? Or have we become too myopic in the things that move us and so we go there? But where is the cross in respect to our lives, in respect to our ministry, in respect to what we do? Verse 31, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What? What? It's been raining a lot lately, hasn't it? It's really hard to burn wet wood, isn't it? So when you look for firewood, you look for dry wood. It is... Not normal, it is not logical, it is not reasonable to burn green wood just like it wasn't normal, logical, or reasonable to sentence an innocent man, green wood, to suffering and death, to burn. Pilate saw Jesus as innocent. Herod saw Jesus as innocent. Many knew Jesus was innocent as evidenced by the weeping, lamenting, mourning as Jesus made His way to Golgotha. It is unnatural for a forest fire to start from a forest and from a tree that is covered in wet green moss. Right? As it is unnatural for death to be sentenced to an innocent, guiltless man. A forest fire starts from dry wood. Death sentences are reserved for guilty men deserving of death. But this happened. An innocent man suffered a death sentence. The rainforest, damp with green moss, caught on fire. And if this is so, if this happened, imagine how much more fierce, how much more ferocious, how much more intense the fire, when it catches on dry wood, when the guilty experience their just sentencing. Imagine how much more fierce, imagine how much more ferocious, imagine how much more intense the guilty's judgment will be. Jesus was innocent and he met this cruel death. Imagine what a guilty Jerusalem faced in 70 AD. Imagine what people who don't have Jesus as their mediator to God will face in judgment. And if such suffering was faced by an innocent man at the hands of men, what do you think happens to those who are truly guilty at the judgment of a holy God? Jesus' words to the women were a warning to them, and they are a warning to us. Jesus is telling us, do not lose sight of everlasting. Do not lose sight of the bigger picture. Yes, as Christians, we are to address injustices of the world, but... Don't lose sight of the cross and that which is everlasting. As followers of Jesus, justice, community, service, those are all byproducts of our discipleship of following Jesus. But those are not our banners. Our banner is Jesus. And we need to point people to Jesus. We need to direct people's faith and belief towards Jesus as their Savior for their sins. And we need to preach repentance. And I know that is a very unpopular subject. But Jesus is calling us to believe that He takes on our sin, to believe in Him as our Savior from sin. He isn't calling us to sympathy. He isn't calling us to religion. We're not to be a crossless humanitarian, a crossless philanthropist, a crossless religious people. The point isn't to continually point out the plight of humanity or the sufferings of Jesus. Those are things we recognize because we are followers of Jesus and we have emotions and we have feelings in regards to injustices of the world and what Jesus faced. But those are not the things that bring us to repentance and confession that Jesus is our Lord, Redeemer and Savior. God doesn't need our sympathy. He's very capable of taking care of himself. He took care of Jesus on the cross. He's very capable of taking care of everyone in this world. Are we doing our part to point people to Jesus and the cross? Or are we distracting them by pointing them to something else? Even something that seems worthy of our sympathies. But it's actually diverting people from Jesus. And this includes the church. This includes religion. This includes parachurch work or any type of nonprofit work that is out there for a worthy cause. The point isn't to educate people about injustice. It isn't to move people emotionally about injustice. It's a call to respond to the injustice because a change has taken place in us. How will you change with what you know, what you're emotionally moved by? Jesus says, "Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Are you right with God?" Do the people you care most about, are they right with God? Because if you stay in your unbelief, there will come a day when you will wish you were dead. John wrote in Revelation chapter 6 verses 15 through 17, Your only salvation is through Jesus Christ, not how good you think you are, not how much good you think you do, because who's the judge of that? You? Me? I mean, how do you and I determine that? God is judge, and you and I are only looked upon as innocent because a sinless man in Jesus paid our debt with his death on the cross. So let us not dare to be crossless Christians. That is the only thing that separates you from the world. Let us not be fooled that our good works, our compassion, our sympathies, our service, our community, our religion, our feelings save us. It is Jesus and what He did on the cross and only the Spirit of God can convert you. It is nothing that I can say that can convince you. Jesus didn't die on the cross for your sympathy. He died for you. He died in your place because there's a day when you and I will face God because we all die. And we will face Him. And when you and I face God, it is only Jesus' death on the cross that will save you. The only way for that to happen is for you to repent and to faithfully believe that He did that for you. And this is what the Bible teaches. I cannot convince you of that. I can just tell you what the Bible teaches. And I can only tell you that the rest of it rests on you and God. It's between you and him, and you need to ask for that change. Let's pray. Father, may we not minimize, cheapen, water down the cross. God, for any who is desiring to have a relationship with you, Lord, may you speak to them as they ask of you. And if anyone here in this church is desiring to receive Jesus, just repeat after me this prayer in your heart and believe this in faith. Jesus, I need you. I am a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I want you in my life. Please change me. In Jesus' name, amen.